This is Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. Wampanoag chef Sherry Pocknett makes history as the first Native American woman to win the biggest honor in the national culinary world. Ojibwe chef Bryce Stevenson opens a new Native restaurant mixing traditional flavors with modern techniques. And an Oneida farmer writes a book shedding new light on her tribe's traditional perspective on corn. That's all on today's menu. We're back after National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. With a new decision from the Supreme Court, colleges nationwide can no longer consider a student's race during the admissions process. After decades of affirmative action, what comes next for Native students? South Dakota Public Broadcasting's C.J. Keene checks in. The 6-3 ruling will have sweeping implications at campuses across the nation, from Harvard and Stanford to USD and BHSU. NPR reports the ruling will mainly impact a few hundred schools with highly selective admissions, but advocates are still concerned about the implications. Samantha Chapman is an advocacy manager with the ACLU of South Dakota. She says they anticipated this ruling. It doesn't make it any less devastating for students across America. Here in South Dakota, particularly our Native students. The, the movement against affirmative action is definitely part of a larger effort to um, rewrite our nation's history and uh, have a small group of people dictate um, what this country looks like and how we talk about who we are. From this ruling here about affirmative action to erasing the existence of LGBTQ and two-spirit people on college campuses through the acknowledgement of their pronouns. She says the ruling could open the door to similar situations. I would assume that based on the same um, legal framework, we could expect a similar result if a case were to come to the Supreme Court regarding corporate affirmative action practices. Chapman says the ACLU of South Dakota hasn't raised the white flag yet. On Twitter, I've seen some lawmakers already stating that they will bring bills next legislative session to ban affirmative action outright um, here in our state. And I just want them to know that if there is any attempt to ban race-conscious academic admissions, we will be there to oppose it and to remind them that a race-conscious admissions process is the extension of a university's academic freedom to assemble a student body across all races and ethnicities. In response to the decision, President Joe Biden has directed the Department of Education to analyze practices and create more inclusive and diverse student bodies. For National Native News in Rapid City, I'm C.J. Keene. Four national Native organizations which provide scholarships are raising concerns about the Supreme Court's ruling on affirmative action. In a statement Thursday, the American Indian College Fund, the American Indian Science and Engineering Society, the Cobell Scholarship Program, and the Native Forward Scholars Fund said they're disheartened by the ruling. Saying for decades, affirmative action provided worthy for American Indian and Alaska Native students with the opportunity for affordable higher education. They're expressing to Native students not to let the decision discourage their higher education goals. And the organizations are calling on higher education institutions, policymakers, advocates, and students to ensure higher education is accessible for all and that Native cultures and contributions are embraced. 
This week, the Blackfeet Nation released roughly two dozen free-roaming bison onto tribal lands bordering Glacier National Park. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton reports it's the first time the landscape has seen the animal in over a century. The bison were released on tribal lands near Chief Mountain, which borders the national park. Blackfeet Tribal Business Council Vice Chairman Lauren Monroe Jr. says it's an act of tribal sovereignty and rights historical wrongs. Saying, you know, the Blackfeet are in charge here. We're in charge of our homelands. This is what we're going to do, and this is how we're going to do it, and we don't have to ask permission to be Blackfeet anymore. The federal government led a campaign in the 1800s to wipe buffalo from the landscape. The intent was to gain leverage over tribal nations by pushing them into hunger. Monroe says the tribe plans to monitor how the herd reproduces and the impact the keystone species return has on other wildlife. The tribe hopes the herd will eventually grow large enough for tribal hunts, but will also be an economic boon for tourists eager to catch a glimpse of buffalo not seen on these lands for 100 years. In Columbia Falls, I'm Aaron Bolton. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, working to ensure tribal colleges and universities are included in our higher education system. Information on 37 tribal colleges and universities at AIHEC.org. Ready to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help with advice and resources. See what SBA can do for you. Go to sba.gov start. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is the menu on Native America Calling, our regular feature on Native American food news and highlights. I'm Andy Murphy, host and foodie. Opening a restaurant is a tough thing to do, but it's now something that is part of Ojibwe chef Bryce Stevenson's reality. He opened Mejum in LaPointe, Wisconsin, a small island town in Lake Superior. Later in the hour, we'll check in with Bryce about his culinary journey so far. We'll also check in with Rebecca Webster, Oneida professor and farmer, about her new book, Our Precious Corn. It takes a look at the journey her tribe's corn has taken through different communities and families. But first, let's meet with Chef Sherry Pocknett. She won a James Beard Award medal as the best chef of the Northeast. That's like winning an Oscar in the food world. You can join us too. Do you have native food news and highlights to share? Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us from Mashpee, Massachusetts is Sherry Pocknett. She's a uh, the chef and owner of Sly Fox Den. She's Wampanoag. Thank you for joining us here on The Menu, Sherry. Hey, Andy, how are you? Doing I, um, pretty good. Uh, yeah, good. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you again. Right. Since the uh, um, James Beard Award. Right. Hey. 
<laughs> Thank you. Ha thanks for having me on again. Yeah, no problem. Um, so, yeah, like you said, I was at the James Beard Award ceremony in Chicago, and it was this gorgeous black tie event with the best of the best chefs and restaurateurs in the country all there. Uh, and then when they announced your name as the best chef of the Northeast, I was pretty blown away. I've never had your food or visited your restaurant, Sly Fox Den, before, but this meant that you are the first Native woman to win this award. And um, during the ceremony, you, you got up and you got your award and you said a few words and then you mentioned to everyone that you have cancer. And I think that pulled on everyone's heartstrings there. Um, how does getting this award and going through cancer treatment change the way you feel about your place in the kitchen, Sherry? It really doesn't. It just just means that I got to work harder to get rid of this cancer and I'm almost through it. I'm done with the chemotherapy. I just have surgery left and then trying to um you know, get healthy. That means that means um physical therapy and listening to my doctors and taking all these crazy pills and all that. But I'm 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 almost there. I'm almost there. Um but being the chef, unfortunately, right now, my daughter wants me to get through the surgery and, and get better before I come back to work. So she's handling everything right now. You know, amazingly, she uh, I'm, I'm so grateful for her because she her name is Jade and she she learned everything from growing up and, and she cooks just like me. <laughs> she, she she really does. So we might have a new one on our hands. Right. You know, uh, um, maybe coming soon. But anyway, um, I just want to cook. Yeah. That's all. I want to cook. It, it, what it does is makes you want to do things better. It makes you think harder. It makes you really want to. Um, now that you now that now that I'm, I'm the best chef in the Northeast, it's just more about proving to myself that I'm that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, because the chefs that I went up with were amazing. And I just, I just um, really, really love cooking. I just really know, know how, to, what goes together. And I'm, I cook very simple, very simple and very, um, you know, the bounty of the season. Mm -hmm. that, that's how I cook. So I'm just trying to do a little fusion with it and, um, Sometimes and sometimes mm -hmm. I don't, and um, just do my best. And just people just love what we what we do. They love, you know, it's different. You can't go in any restaurant around here and and find venison, or smoked salmon. You know what I mean? Or mm -hmm. or frog legs. I don't know too many restaurants unless they're French that sell frog legs. Yeah, huh? You know? Uh, yeah, it's a lot of different rabbit. You know, we do a lot of rabbit. Um, we do lots of different, uh, lots of fish, many different ways, lobster, shellfish, soft shell crabs. I can go on and on. 
Yeah, definitely. You're you're in the spot for that. Um, since winning the award, you've done a lot of interviews with other press. You even did an interview with me the day after the award ceremony uh, in your hotel uh, for my podcast. Uh, but what do you hope sharing your story and um, your restaurant, what do you hope that adds to the bigger picture of American food? Well, the bigger picture is foraging. That's the bigger picture, honestly, because we all know how the food prices are jacking up and how, how, how expensive it is to go to the grocery store. And the quality of the food that you're getting in the grocery store is not great. That's my own personal opinion. But, I mean, if we learn how to forage, that means – and we're going we're gonna, to – take food off of the land, that means we have to take care of this land. We have to make sure that we do our part in taking care of the land because taking care of the land means you, you're going to be able to eat more off the land. And it's very, very important in taking care of the water because, you know, water quality makes a difference, especially in cooking. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how did you um, how did you get started in um, uh, the restaurant business? It, it's been quite a journey, and then in the middle of that is the pandemic. Tell us about uh, opening Sly Fox Den. Well, first I I, I worked for Mash and Tuck at Pequots um, in in Connecticut. I worked for them for five years. I ran a, a two hundred and fifty seat restaurant there for about five years. And I just wanted to branch out on my, on my own because what I really was doing was a lot of catering. I'm a caterer. And I I did the catering, you know, and have a great reputation for catering. I did a lot of Ivy League schools and stuff like that. So I was looking for a place for catering and I came across this amazing building that that's one mile from my house. By the way, I live in Connecticut. I, I work in Rhode Island, I work in Connecticut, I work in Mass, and on Cape Cod in Boston. Um, but So I needed a place to to base my catering, and I thought Connecticut was a, a great location because I go to New York, I go to Virginia, I go to Washington, D.C., you know, a, a, a wide range of um, places that I cater for. So I found this building, 2019, I I bought the build, bought the building, let alone, I don't even know how I bought it. I borrowed money from everybody because I didn't have a dime. <laughs> I borrowed money from everybody, and everybody's paid back just about. Maybe maybe one person, maybe two. Um, but they're very patient and very understanding and, and, and know my story, and, you know, um, they're good. They're, they're, I'm, I'm, I'm trusted. I'm still working on paying them a little bit at a time. But... Um, we bought that building February 1st, 2019. We busted our necks trying to get it open, you know, sweat equity. And we put an addition on for the kitchen because it was just a bar, a little little bar kitchen. So we put an addition on. We did some floors, um, replaced some floors. And that, and now it, needs, it still needs more work, um, quite a bit more work, actually. Um, but um, then the pandemic comes. I remember, so, you know, March 9th, 2020, and every, the world shut down. So 
I had to keep up with the payments. I don't know how I did it, but I did it. And I still own it of, of the restaurant. And at the end of 2020, um, they were, they were opening back up, but no one's not for catering just for like, you know, the restaurants were open back up a little bit. They could do a third of the business that they normally do. So I, not that I was looking for a restaurant, but I ran across a small little cute restaurant, 30 seats. And I said, well, maybe if I, you know, lease this place, I can create some revenue to work on the building again. So I talked to the, talked to the owner of the building and I ended up with a lease. So um, we opened, we were supposed to open January 1st, but I have to, uh, I, uh, you know, it was so much work involved in opening a restaurant. It's, you know, I ran a restaurant, but I never opened one, mm-hmm. but, but it was an adventure and we finally got it open, not until June, you know, with all the legalities and septic systems and water systems that everything needs a license. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, it costs a lot of money. So, anyway, we ended up getting this small little, and that's and we we called it Sly Fox Den too, mm-hmm. because the big restaurant that we bought was Sly Fox Den. So we ended up calling it Sly Fox Den too. We started right out. We boomed because the food was different. You know, like I said, venison, smoked fish, lots of smoked fish rabbit wild game and a lot of places don't do that type of stuff and i have my own take on my own uh, three sisters um food that i do i do a three sisters rice it's you know a blend of wild rice and um brown rice Mm -hmm. and it has our three sisters corn squash and beans in it and so you know some onions some greens in there and and people love it vegans love it we use sunflower oil instead of butter, um, instead of, you know, regular vegetable oil, which is soy, which is not really that great for you. Mm. Um, Goodness. Goodness, that sounds delicious. Um, Well, that is uh, Sherry Pocknick. Uh, Pocknet uh, Wampanoag chef, best chef in the Northeast, according to the James Beard Foundation. We'll be back after this break. Jacob Weasel just made history as the first Native American to summit Mount Everest. When he's not climbing the world's highest peaks, he's a surgeon in Rapid City, South Dakota, and spends his spare time inspiring Native youth to fulfill their dreams. Dr. Weasel joins us as our Native in the Spotlight on the next Native America Calling. Hey, hey. You are listening to The Menu on Native America Calling, our regular feature on Indigenous food news and highlights. I'm your host and producer, Andy Murphy. 
We uh, just wrapped up our conversation with Sherry Pocknett. Uh, she talked about her journey to uh, win a James Beard Award for Best Chef of the Northeast. We're going to move on and talk with Bryce Stevenson about his new restaurant, and then uh, we'll go on to uh, Rebecca Webster. She has a new book out. You can join us too. Our phone lines are open. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Wisconsin is Bryce Stevenson. He's the chef and owner of Me Gym, and he is a member of the Red Cliff Band of Lake Superior Chippewa. Thank you for joining the menu on Native America Calling, Bryce. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for joining. So um, the restaurant, Mijim, has been open for about a month now. How have things been going so far? Uh, it's been it's been pretty crazy so far. Um, we sort of timed the opening t- uh, around the sort of the kickstart to the season here. So uh, just from the beginning, we've just, you know, just been go, go, go. <laughs> Right. Uh, tell me about the name uh, Mijim. What what does that mean? Uh, so Mijim in Ojibwe just means food, and it's, that's just plain and simple. Um, and it's just uh, sort of meant to put a magnification on the fact that it's just at the end of the day, like as beautiful and delicious as we're making this, it's 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 food, it's medicine for our bodies, and it's just like it's just it's that simple. All right. And uh, about starting the restaurant, um, how long have uh, you been working on this? And, and why did you uh, want to start a restaurant? Uh, the, the, the concept, the idea of what we are currently doing, it, it, it popped in my mind as soon as I, I started in the food industry. It was just something that just made sense. And uh, clicked in my mind of being where I'm from, uh, studying in, in you know indigenous history in school, and then working in the food industry. It just it just all came together, and you know so it's it has been a dream. You know I'd say like my you know my life stream, I guess if you will, uh, since then, and I have been everything that I've been doing. Uh, from that moment till now, it's just been, you know, those little baby steps you have to take to, you know, you need the, the right experience, the right knowledge, the right place, the right time, you know, all of those things. And uh, much like uh, Chef Pocknet, I heavily affected by COVID and, you know, when when COVID hit, it, it, it just, it, it just, it, I mean, it literally put me on the couch for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then in my mind, it, it put me in the same place, and it was really hard to get out of that. Um, and I think returning home is what I needed. And, and I've always, I always knew that I whatever I opened up, whatever I did, I, it had to be back home. It had to be something for uh, my family, my community, the, you know, this, this area that I have, you know, huge massive connection with you know i had to bring something back that i i could share with them and you know give them something uh something perhaps they're missing or wishing for yeah what what is the environment like for indigenous food there in wisconsin is it something diners are are looking for 
Uh, absolutely. Um, we so far we've seen diners. Uh, I mean, we because of the tourist uh, nature of the area up here, we get a lot of cities people from the Twin Cities from up there. But uh, we're seeing more and more, you know, Milwaukee, Madison, even just rural Wisconsin that are they're making an intentional trip just to dine with us because they're just. Uh, Again, not to not to keep uh, referring back to Chef Pachner, but it's it's it was something different. It's something that nobody else is seeing, you know, unless they're in the cities and have the luxury of being, you know, there. But you know, they want they want the the experience of the food, but also the experience of like where we're at. You know, we're we're on this sacred island for the, uh, the Ojibwe people, and you know, it's it's now a if you come visit uh Conning, it's it's there's a lot of summer homes, a lot of huge lake houses, a lot of you know tourist attractions, but there's there's nothing for the indigenous people there. There's nothing for um, people wanting to connect to their culture. There's there's there are no platforms for indigenous people to be able to share you know maybe their family recipes, their style of you know Ojibwe food, um, and I think sometimes it's just that domino effect, you know, if we come back and we're able to, to do it, you know, that, that people are going to see that, oh, wow, there is this, this need or craving for it in this area. And, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna spark their, you know, their dreams and they're going to want to open something and then that's going to spark someone else's. And then it just becomes this beautiful, you know, flourishment of just indigenous people doing cool indigenous things. <laughs> Um, how, how have you been influenced by other Native chefs doing their thing out there? I'm, I'm looking at other Native chefs all the time, every day, mm -hmm. just to just, you know, see what they're doing. What are they, what are they sort of hyper-focusing on? You know, I think as chefs by nature, we, we tend to go through this hyper-focus, um, patterns where it's just, you know, maybe it's just an ingredient and that ingredient is just like, what can I do with this ingredient? And, you know, so I love, love seeing that. Um, obviously, you know, the, the, the big name, Sean Sherman, huge influence on, on everyone. Um, having been the executive chef for the food lab in Minneapolis, uh, got to know Sean a lot uh, more in depth and, you know, really get to share more on his philosophies of food sovereignty and, you know, what, what he's ultimately looking to accomplish. And, you know, so that, you know, seeing that, that, that big picture thinking coming from someone who, you know, grew up in the, the, the small uh, picture res or town or whatever you want to say, you know, to, to see that transition, it just, you know, it's inspiring for anyone to, you know, it's like, okay, this, you know, this guy is doing great things, but he's going to keep going. Um, and, you know, I want everyone to be able to see that they can do that, that, you know, you can, you know, win James Beard Award, but then you can, you know, go on to just, you know, keep going, keep wanting to expand and, you know, help out as much as possible. Right. And um, what is the Indigenous Food Lab? This month they also opened up a location in uh, Minneapolis. Yeah, so um, so the Indigenous Food Lab is is the kitchen for natives, and natives is the North American traditional Indigenous food sovereignty or food systems. I apologize, uh, which was founded by uh, Sean Sherman uh, with 
the sous chef and um, the the focus of the food lab when I started and this was uh, right at the um, right in the heat of 2020 um, we had a kitchen in the uh, Midtown Global Market which is on Lake Street and it is um, see, it was at eight blocks directly eight blocks up from where George Floyd was murdered. And so, as you can imagine, the the, the surrounding area was quite burnt down and, you know, in, in rubble, but uh, there was there were a lot of people displaced because of this. Uh, you know, uh, people of all backgrounds, indigenous people, you know, white, black, Asian, Latino, you know, everyone's displaced because of all this chaos and, you know, and so, food security became a massive issue. And so the food lab started off with just creating uh, grain bowls, just, just healthy indigenous, you know, wild rice, quinoa, you know, just um, braised, you know, indigenous meats like bison or duck, you know, things like that. And uh, um, it started off just doing grain bowls. And when I, when I came aboard to help uh, get to get everything sort of uh, fleshed out and planned properly, we made a massive shift from those grain bowls, you know, doing maybe three, 400 grain bowls a day to, um, by the, by the end of the year, so it was about a three month span. We did about a hundred thousand, um, indigenous frozen meals that we sent to, um, all the different reservations and organizations in the state of Minnesota. And we're able to provide, um, quite a bit of food assistance. Um, from that, point up until now i know that the the market even when i was there we were planning the market we we're getting bids for the market and everything and so it's, it's been a project that's uh been a long time coming and i'm really happy to see that it's it's finally you know able to see it's it's light of day right right what did you um you know from doing that work and making hundreds and hundreds of grain bowls and um you know seeing what is behind the scenes uh in that work how, how did that transfer over into uh, opening a restaurant and putting that all together well honestly it it helped it helped help bring a new perspective uh, mm. I come traditionally come from like a finite background um, and so going from you know let's say a 75 person max tasting menu spot over to uh, this facility that is just pumping out just thousands and thousands of meals a day I mean we had to go through the whole process of licensing licensing it out as a production facility is no longer just a you know just a kitchen i had it making it you know this entire facility and um seeing both sides of that spectrum both ends you know really it, it helps you navigate better you know what works well in one sense what works well in the other sense and you know so it, i i come from so i come from like a carpentry background before I started cooking and so um, the way I always look at things is just like steps and building blocks and you know it's just the process of getting there and so opening the restaurant it I had to go back to that you know turn off the chef mindset of just get it all done now you know and uh, go back to the the mindset of just let's let's 
do what we can. Let's just go through the right steps, get through the process, and you know things are gonna gonna work out just fine. <laughs> you hope. Yeah, you hope. Huh? <laughs> um, what uh, what um, what what's one of the uh, dishes on your menu right now that you're really proud of? Uh, I, I would say that it's just any of the food that we're able to send out, I'm, I'm extremely proud of. And um, my staff has been doing just amazing job sort of translating the chaos of my mind into um, into a proper dish, you know. So I'll, I'll, I'll come in and be like, oh, I want to change this. You know, I'm just always changing things on them. And, they're, you know, they've been really good about rolling with my punches uh, but I, I really have to say uh i'm a huge advocate for our hangover stew i think it just you know just i i love the layers of sort of family and history that that comes with it you know sort of uh the dish itself is a very simple looking dish i mean it's just a bowl of just tomato-based stew and but the taste of it is just just as you're eating it just more and more complicated and i think just like the the history and the context around um you know ingredients traveling the world uh from the americas um sort of the resilience of indigenous people with their commodity systems and you know just the, the overall concept of um love and food and medicine sort of all being the same thing you know um so i that dish just really, um, and what it is is it's it's uh, it's elk. So we take elk and we just over live fire we char it up and then we braise it down um, with a lot of different mushrooms. So you know black trumpets or porcini's or you know things that we're able to find. Um, get that just braising just down with tons of tomatoes and just garlic and onions and you know sage and bergamot just letting that just just go for hours and hours and hours and you know and then we just we scoop that out and we serve it over a bed of you know hand harvested wild rice and you know it's like i said it's simple but when you're eating it just sort of you know it has that warmth and comfort of a bowl of hangover soup um but it also has that sort of um that grit that you get with you know just something that's just like just really hearty and you know makes you <laughs> Yeah. So, um, hangover stew, hangover soup is something that you see uh, all over the place. Uh, what makes a good hangover soup or stew? Uh, for me, it's just, it's about the love. Um, I mean, I, th I think my favorite hangover soup is from my auntie and there's, it's super simple, some ground beef, some onion, some uh, tomato juice, um, and then, you know, obviously the elbow macaroni, um, but just, I don't know. She, I don't know. She has something special in her spice cabinet or what, but you know, when she makes it, I'll, I'll sit there and I'll eat the whole pot. You know, if I make it like it's good, but I, it's not whole pot worthy, you know? So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you have, uh, in the future? I know this is a small, um, a small restaurant. I've seen uh, pictures on social media and there's maybe, uh, five, six tables. Um, are you looking to expand? What's, what's going to go on in the future? What can we see from Mejim? 
Um, well, so we so we let's see, we have we have ten tables inside. Um, may not look like it, but yeah, we definitely were able to squeeze ten in there, and then we have uh, five bar seats, so it, it is very small. Uh, we do have a large patio in which we have another five tables out there. Um, it gets crowded very quickly, and it, it's something that I personally like. I'm not a huge fan of uh, large facilities, and I, again, I think that comes from just my cooking background of, you know, more intimate spots, and so kind of having everyone squished together and music's maybe a little too loud, but, you know, just just enough to where you have to, have to try to raise your voice a little, put, put some bass in it. Um, you know, just, just lights are dim enough, just where you're, you know, squinching to the menu, you know, sort of that, you know, you feel like you're just at, a, just at someone's like fun house, you know, mm -hmm. someone's house party or something, just this atmosphere. Um, and that's just something that we, we want to keep going. Um, the ultimate, ultimate, you know, the dream, the build out, the, you know, this is the flagship sort of vision, uh, will be pretty different. It, it, it will be, uh, and plan for a long time but it, it'll be a traditional roundhouse and um all the cooking will be done over just live wood fire uh just right in the center there and then nice. you know just everything is just sort of circling that following that circling pattern of the, the kitchen in the center and that's that's like that's what we're going for and it will happen and i'm mm -hmm. hoping it'll it'll be on tribal land all right uh we'll be back after this break this is the menu on native america calling Challenges to societal harmony abound. Trauma, depression, addiction. In Native communities, these challenges affect nearly everyone. The Native American Social Work Studies Institute educates social workers for careers to address the needs of Native communities. You can be part of the solution as a peer support worker, community health worker, or a counselor with culturally relevant training from the Native American Social Work Studies Institute. Info at online.nmhu.edu. New Mexico Highlands University supports this show. This is the menu on Native America Calling, our regular show on Native American food. I'm producer and foodie, Andy Murphy. There's still time to join our conversation. Are you excited about uh, uh, Native food sovereignty initiatives or businesses in your Native community? Tell us about it by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. I want to go back to our guest, uh, Bryce Stevenson. He's a chef and owner of Me Gym there in Wisconsin. Um, Bryce, where can we find more information about your uh, new restaurant, Me Gym? I, th I think the easiest place is our website. It's, it's mejim.com, M-I-I-J-I-M.com. Otherwise, uh, Facebook, Instagram, uh, we're on there. All right. And um, are you currently um, uh, experimenting with any uh, new menu items or particular ingredients right now? With sort of with our area, uh, we have a lot of different microclimates over here. So um, a lot of cool things happen with uh, different berry berry growing and fruit and everything like that so uh the menu will just keep changing as the farmers keep changing or the foragers keep ch you know changing what they can get and uh but right now we have uh bayfield strawberries which uh bayfield uh well known for strawberries and apples here 
Um, and Bayfield's like our, you know, our sort of colonizer town right next to the res. And uh, the strawberries, though, over here this time of year are just, just unbelievable. And, and so we're really excited to have those under the strawberry moon and, you know, be able to work with them. Awesome. All right. Uh, that was um, Bryce Stevenson. Thank you so much for joining. Um, I want to go over to our uh, other guest here. Joining us from Oneida, Wisconsin is Rebecca Webster. She is a farmer and she's a citizen of the Oneida Nation of Wisconsin. Thank you for joining the menu, Rebecca. Magulli, thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, your new book, um, Our Precious Corn, can you tell us about um, uh, the, the traditional name? Yungwanasti, it's, um, that means our precious and it also means our corn. And I think that was a fitting title for the book because it's talking about how precious the corn is and our relationship with the corn throughout all of time. Awesome. And uh, what what kind of research did you do for this book? I did a lot of research in the historical records, um, talked to a lot of elders in our community, and interviewed about 50 community members about their relationship with our traditional heirloom corn. Wow, that that um, that seems like a lot, a lot of work over a lot of time. There, uh, what would I guess? What was one of the most surprising things you learned about corn while writing and and going through this research process? Um, not necessarily surprising, but it was um, really reassuring to know that our corn sister has remained by our side through all of time. And it feels like she was really pulling us back to our community, back to each other, back to our language, back to our history, time and time again throughout our traumatic past. Right. And um, how has your personal connection to corn changed um, over this this process of uh, research and writing? Um, I'm not sure my relationship has changed much, but I'm learning so much every year about the different varieties of corn, not just the white corn, which is their most common um, corn, and there's a few varieties of that white corn, but just the different ways that she presents herself, how, how different they all are, and that while I've been very fortunate to have a lot of seed mentors, that it feels like the most compelling teacher is the plants themselves and, and how much they have to show us and teach us if we're just willing to slow down and listen to what they're telling us. Right. Um, and who are, who are some of the knowledge keepers uh, you learned a lot from? Who are some of those key uh, knowledge keepers that uh, we're going to hear from in the book? Sure. So some of the knowledge keepers... Um, you know, uh, Roger Cook, who actually, we were lucky enough, he came to the farmstead today to visit us for the first time in a few years to see what we've been up to. Um, Angela Ferguson, Rowan White, Steve McCumber, um, Jessica Greendeer, um, Shelly Buffalo. So a lot of those people are people that we constantly go to with our questions and, and our, you know, just different things that come up because um, I just did the math, and we're just growing our ninth year of our Indigenous seeds this year. So it feels like 
we have so much to learn. Um, so we're, we're really lucky to have lots of people, and I'm sure I miss some people, but lots of people to go to to ask um, and, and look for guidance. Right, right. And um, <clears throat> how did, uh, you know, the first couple of chapters of uh, Our Precious Corn uh, look at the origins of uh, corn and where it stands in uh, some of the, um, you know, storytelling uh, old or origin stories. Uh, can you give us a little bit of a, um, an idea of the origins of, of corn? Sure. So corn is really prevalent throughout our creation story. And I had sat a number of times um, with our Chief Bob Brown and listened to him tell different versions of the stories that he's familiar with and the different parts along in our creation story where corn makes an appearance and teaches us valuable lessons, like anywhere from, you know, um, how to process our corn to how to grow our corn, where our corn comes from, what it means to us. Um, all of these different lessons that are in the story um, about gratitude can come from corn. Right. And uh, what, what was one of the hardest chapters for you to write about? It, it's definitely the chapter on the Revolutionary War. Mm. Um, and that was where our, um, we had a really, it was a really dark time in our history of the Haudenosaunee people, of which the Oneida are, are part of. And um, we had taken different sides on the war. We tried to remain neutral, but were unable to. And there was a whole lot of destruction on the part of, you know, George Washington and Sullivan's army um, destroying over 40 towns, um, an astounding 9.6 million acres of corn, um, countless orchards, bean squash, and the, um, the uh, diaries of the military officers would talk about when they rolled up into a town, they would eat their fill, they would feed their animals, and they would destroy the rest. Then they would stroll up to the next town and do the same over and over and over again. And it was extremely destructive in a very dark time in our history. Um, why was it important for you to add uh, perspectives uh, of corn from non-Native explorers and, and military people? Well, because um, I thought that I didn't include all of what was in those journals. I just referenced what was happening there. But I did include a lot of our people um, and what they thought about what was happening at that time. And I think it was really important to understand that even though that was a really terrible time for us, that um, corn has brought us through that and brought us back together, helped us relight our council fire, bring the people back and, um, and heal. So I think we have to acknowledge that horrible past in, in order for us to heal from it. Right. And um, and how does uh, how did corn follow the people from uh, the east coast, uh, the northeast, um, to Wisconsin? Because Oneidas are not originally from Wisconsin, right? Yeah. So after the Revolutionary War, and, and com combined with the destruction that happened with that, the illegal land treaties, the influence of alcohol. 
there were a lot of reasons that um, the United people uh, moved west. We were removed, but we also knew that in order to survive that we really needed to look for a new homeland because of the state of things out east at the time. And we originally thought that the rest of the Confederacy was coming with us. And unfortunately, it was just really Oneida and a couple other, um, the Stockbridge and the Brotherton that came with us from, from that area. Um, but during that trip, we brought our corn with us. And in our own accounts of the Oneida people, we have records showing that when we first got here, some of the first things that we started to do was to clear the land so we could begin farming again. Okay. Was there ever a point uh, in history or recent history where uh, corn kind of um, uh, maybe you know, disappeared or you know was dormant for a while? No, and I think that's what I was a little bit surprised about because I wasn't quite sure what happened between you know the 1930s or so and then say the 1970s, but it was really a, a beautiful to hear from the elders in our community talk about what it was like when they were younger. And there has always been corn in our community and people that would grow it. Not everyone grew it, but in, we all knew who in the community were the growers and who was making corn soup, who was making the gunna sohal. And there would be gatherings, you know, to celebrate, you know, so-and-so is making this at their house. And then everyone, you know, would hear about it through the grapevine and go and get some. So I think it was really important to be able to recognize that she never left us and that there were enough people that cared for her so that when the rest of us were ready to come and care for her again, that, that she would be there and she'd be ready. Right. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, corn soup. Uh, w what other ways do uh, Oneidas uh, uh, use corn? Ooh, lots of ways. Uh, mush, uh, bread, um, just different dishes. And the book has an appendix that has a bunch of different recipes, both um, from our historical records. Um, also, some modern recipes are in there as well from our community. Um, and extended communities. And I think we even have some in there that are, are really early explorers when they came into Oneida communities, I think in the 1600s. Um, so it's a really mix of historical and contemporary recipes using corn that are included in the appendix to the book. Okay. From uh, creating that section of the book, uh, did you see how maybe ingredients or, or flavor palettes have changed over time? Oh, sure. You know, I'm, I'm sure we didn't use pork in our soup historically. There weren't <laughs> any pigs here. But, um, yeah, different things have changed. Uh, different ingredients have changed. And even amongst our, our Haudenosaunee communities, different people will put different things in their soup. Um, yeah, so it's it's great. And, and I think it's just one of the many ways that we can enjoy corn. All right. And uh, for you personally, uh, growing out this corn and, um, you know, being one of these corn growers in the community, I mean, what, what is behind your work and, and how did you come to, uh, you know, land on corn just being this very important uh, figure in, in your life? Well, I think um, my husband and I, we always like to eat the corn soup. Um, we we said we always wanted to grow it, but we didn't actually grow our corn until 2015. And then she really took a hold really fast between the corn, the beans, the squash, and all of our other foods. 
um, they really prompted us to take changes in our in our life paths. My husband was a records director for the Oneida Nation, and I was an in-house attorney for the Oneida Nation, um, serving as a senior staff attorney. And uh, I switched careers, became a professor at the University of Minnesota Duluth, teaching remotely. And I talked my husband into quitting his job, buying 10 acres of land, and homeschooling our two daughters. And um, we did that, and we grow all kinds of foods here now on our, our farmstead. We grow corn, beans, squash, sunchokes, a variety of different berries, uh, fruit trees, and nut trees. We're just getting into um, wild plums. So we're really running the gamut of the different things here, both indigenous and um, things that our people have a long history of caring for, like the apple trees. Awesome. Awesome. And that um, kind of, uh, you know, funnels into uh, Ukwakwa. Is that uh, your, um, it's it's a, a, a group, right? Tell us about Ukwakwa. Sure. Ukwakwa, it, it's <laughs> the literal translation means our foods. Oh. And that is, Ukwakwa Chitnuni Ukwakwa Toslu means our foods, where we plant things. And that's the name the faithkeeper gave to our property here. And um, because the goal is that we wanted to create a safe space for people to learn about our foods, because there can oftentimes be a lot of shame or embarrassment because we don't know a lot of these things because of colonization, assimilation, mm-hmm. removal, these planned attempts to remove our culture from us and to take our history. So now we're at a time where those of us that held on to that history, um, that we can learn from them. And then we can turn around and share that again with our community who wants to learn about it. And um, two years now ago, we were able to form a nonprofit called Ungwakwa, which is a 501c3 nonprofit that allowed us to get access to grant funding to help fund some of the things that we're doing here at home on our farmstead. Um, We've done lots of classes on um, just learning about how to cook our foods, um, how to grow, how to prepare, how to make traditional tools and crafts that are related to um, processing and caring for our foods. We were able to build a certified uh, and inspected by the United Nations uh, commercial kitchen. We have a trading post here um, on the farmstead. So we've got a lot of things going here that are um, meant to create a safe space for our seeds to come home and for the people to come home and learn about them. All right. Yeah, definitely really uh, busy there in uh, Oneida. Uh, Rebecca, really quick, where can we find a copy of Our Precious Corn? Um, from the publisher, the University of um, um, Michigan State University Press has it. But also, I understand Birchbark Books. You can order from them online and they can mail you a copy. Yeah. All right. Native uh, native bookstore there. <laughs> All right. Well, Rebecca Webster, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, she's an author, farmer, and uh, assistant professor of Indian Studies over at the University of Minnesota. Uh, we also had Sherry Pocknett on and uh, Bryce Stevenson. Thank you for joining us. Um, join us again next week when we start off uh, with a conversation with Dr. Jacob Weasel the first Native American to summit Mount Everest. Have a good weekend. Support by Amerind. 
Indian Country's 100% tribally-owned insurance partner. Amerind works with tribal governments and their business enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian Country. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto solutions at amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D dot com. Uju, calling all warriors. It's time for self-care. Fathers, uncles, grandfathers, sons, and nephews all deserve a chance to be at their best to protect their loved ones. Use this checklist to keep track of the preventative health services you need. For more information, visit go.cms.gov slash men's health checklist. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.